0: All right. So today is going to be warm. Um, I don't know about you. I already brought my little Pentecostal rag with me. Um, right. So I'm just pat it down. Glory to God. And, uh, so I got that you all have a fan fit for a gnome, you know, so, but, uh, hopefully you can make that work out as we study the topic of doctrine. All right. So matter of fact, um, This is the book that we are sort of tagging in with. We're not really teaching the book. Uh, This is just sort of a supplement that you can use uh, and read along week to week as we hit sort of each topic within the book. Uh, And again, I think this is a critical series to go through. Now, I know some people, when they heard the summer series is going to be Doctrine, you went, woohoo, that's rock and roll for the soul, didn't you? That's what you thought. I know it. All right. No, I'm sure some of you went, I don't know, man, is doctrine like really the thing to do? And I think there's kind of two uh, basic objections that people have to doctrine. Uh, One is going to be, well, that's for theologians, right? That's what they do. They go into their tower, they read theology, they read doctrine, and then uh, that's their job. And yet, as a church, we say we are missional theologians. Every single person... In this room, if you know Jesus Christ, you are a missional theologian, and so this is for you, right? So you're all theologians, so in that sense you go, yeah, I want to know doctrine. The other reason I believe it's so important is because doctrine is practical. Now again, the objection can be, well, it's really not that practical for life. I need more practical information, And, and I would push back on that pretty hard because if there's anything I have realized in my life, it's that when life is hard when things are challenging when when life just explodes in my face it is doctrine that holds me secure more than other things in fact over the last couple of years you know i've had some pretty rocky times some big challenges in ministry there's been things that have been perplexing irritating painful whatever and you know what i couldn't turn on Joel Osteen and he go goes you got the victory you know like You've he he got the victory, and like, no, I just have an irritant in my life. I don't have victory. I'm mad right now is what I am. And he's not helping me, you know? And, and, and it would be, but, but I know that God is sovereign. And so I know that this is for my good. And I know his word says that trials produce endurance and patience and joy and the qualities of Christ. And so I, I have to bank on what I know to be true, not what I feel in the moment. Doctrine... Secures. And so as we go through this series, I want to make sure that even though there's going to be moments where you go, wow, this is kind of heavy stuff, it's academic, understand these are the moorings, these are the anchors for your life so that when things go bad, awry, they're difficult, you can bank on truth. Not just what I feel, but on what God states. Truth, doctrine, the essentials and so today's essential i think is vital to really embracing all of that we're looking at the doctrine of revelation the doctrine of revelation now the doctrine of revelation is not the same thing as the book of revelation if you came today going book of revelation nope not going to do that to the glory of god we're skipping that one all together man don't want to do... I, you know, on a sidebar, I noticed on Facebook like yesterday, I have 666 friends. That creeped me out. I'm like... So no offense, when I get home today, somebody's dying. All right, because I got to get out of 666, man. I don't think that's what Jesus has for my Facebook page. Um, he doesn't want that. So we are talking about the Bible. God speaks, how God reveals... Himself to us as his people whether we're believing people or non believing people God reveals himself He loves to reveal to showcase to show off now one of the things I was thinking about this week was my Bible and this Bible is actually my very first Bible this Bible was given to me my sophomore year by this girl named Ellen Stewart um who eventually became Ellen Boswell because she was interested in doing charity and married me. So, um, all right. uh, you know, I'm surprised there wasn't amens on that. All right, so, um, but, but this was my first Bible. This Bible, you know, has gone through high school with me, which means it's had a lot of mileage because I was young, male, and stupid. So it's helpful for that. Give a Bible to all teenage boys. They really need it. Um, And then I went into my internship with this Bible and started to learn all about Scripture and doctrine and theology and ministry and everything else. And so this has got a lot of miles on this Bible. In fact, I've actually taken this and given it to my son Grayson as a, a gift to him. But it's a little bit tricky when I, I gave it to him, too. I'm like, dude, this is the Word of God, you know, and I give it to him. I'm like, but it's kind of falling apart. It's missing part of First Timothy, but don't worry about that. You know, it's like, I, I've lost pages, you know. I'm like, I love First Timothy. It's three chapters. All right, so um, at least now I think I'm missing part of Colossians or whatever. But man, love this Bible. And so w- when the day came for me to retire this, it was so hard. Right? Because I just bonded with it. I have pages in here that are just marked up and notes everywhere. And men, love God's Word, but I had to retire it. So I retired it, and then I ended up with this one right here. I've had this Bible with me now for, I'm guessing, about 12 years, roughly. And it, it's funny what happens with a Bible. You really do become connected with your Bible. I mean, if, if it has real value in your life, you become bound to it, right? It becomes a part of you. I mean, here's some things that might freak you out about me and my relationship to my Bible. This is kind of open bookcase here, all right? So, but like, if, if, if it's missing, I go OCD, man. I'm, I'm just like, I gotta find my Bible, gotta find my Bible, where's my Bible, where's my, you know, all that kind. Of. If it's on the table and somebody uses it as a coaster, I'm like, whoa, 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 that's not a coaster, that's my Bible, you know? And so, I get all obnoxious about it, right? Um... At night, when I'm having a bad night, I sleep with my Bible. No lie. It's my adult teddy bear, man. They're be like, oh, Jesus, I just feel like crap. Like, oh, there's my Bible. Right? Like, that. I love my Bible. But now I know it's time to sort of retire this one because, again, I'm starting to, like, miss pages and things are starting to come out of it. And, and, and yet I, I, I struggle because here's, here's my new Bible. I can't really manage to bring it fully out of the box yet. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not, I'm not ready, you know? But, uh, but I, what I love to do is, uh, ooh, that new Bible smell. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, honestly, if you have not received a new Bible in years, you need to do it and just be like, oh, that's a good hit, man. That's a good hit. You know? So... And so I'm I'm working my way to my new Bible, trying to make the transition. And again, all of that is rooted in something deeper than just color, leather, smell. Why I love the Bible that I have is because this book right here is the truth. This is foundationally, fundamentally, and and really the totality of why I love my Bible. It's the truth. And I know when I say that, I don't think it's going to be so much true in this room, but if I was just to walk to downtown Duval and say, man, this is the truth, the very first thing I would be considered is arrogant. I would be considered arrogant for stating this is the truth for having a conviction that this is just true. I mean, especially in the religious context, it's increasingly like if you say something is true, uh, it almost has to be pushed back on. No, 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 Uh, that's an opinion. Religion's opinion. Ideas in religion, it's opinion. Now, the crazy thing is I'm going to agree. Yes, a lot of religious ideas are opinion. Some are demonic opinions. But there is such a thing as truth. As Christians, we shouldn't be afraid to say we believe that there is a capital T truth. The truth is just true. I know it makes us a little bit nervous at times because, again, we come across as uh, being a little insensitive or unenlightened or whatever else. We live in a climate that very much pushes the idea of relativism, which, as Chesterton said, he said, uh, relativism is the virtue of those who actually believe in nothing. Right? And I, I think that's true. Right? I mean, that's kind of the attitude of the Spirit behind the whole thing. And so, again, we then, if we say, I'm a Christian and I believe the Bible, we need to stop and go, okay, well then, what does that mean? When I say I believe it, what am I swearing to? What am I promising my life to be built upon? What do we intend to communicate as orthodox, evangelical christians in the 21st century what do we want to say about truth see the first thing i think we need to see say and see and believe and understand is that truth is revealed god has actually revealed truth when people say no no, no you can't know the truth nobody can know the absolute truth because it's kind of a mystery and nobody knows for sure because nobody's died and come back to tell us about it. i'm like yes yes but that's a different story All right so but there, there you can know it truth is revealed in fact, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it says, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Not a truth. Not an opinion. He says, Man, the truth has been revealed. The truth is ...can be known. The truth demonstrates something that is vital. Now, does that mean the truth of God tells us everything about every question and every mystery ever? No. We're not going to fully understand things like quantum physics and relativity. We're not going to understand why Vader couldn't shoot lightning bolts like other Sith. We're not going to know, right? We don't know why they're called apartments when they're so close. We don't know, right? But... Welcome to my mind. All right, so... um, we don't know, but what is vital to know, God is revealed. The things of eternal consequence, the big ideas God says, I've revealed. It's not a secret, it's not a mystery in the sense of you can't contemplate a period. No, you have enough to contemplate what matters, and that means truth is revealed. And part of it being revealed is built on the fact that it is intentional, God reveals truth with an intention and the intention is not simply for my betterment for my moral upbringing for the bearings that I need in life God reveals intentionally chiefly to say no my glory no, my glory God wants us to see his glory revere his glory love his glory worship him because he's glorious i mean that's what he wants and so that's why he reveals that's why it's intentional the knowledge of the glory of god look we're quoting habakkuk who does that we do that's what all Right? because so great his glory is so great and so revealed so we can see it and we can celebrate so truth can be known truth is revealed and it is revealed intentionally The problem with the human condition is that we tend to suppress the truth. So when you turn on uh, the radio and you're listening to somebody saying, you can't know, and you watch the news where some atheist is going on there and saying, everybody who believes is silly because you can't know. It's not that they're more enlightened, it's that they're suppressing truth. It's not that the evidence isn't there, it's that they see the evidence and they go, I don't want the evidence to point to God because I want to be my own God, so I'm going to suppress. In fact, Paul kind of deals with this in the book of Romans. And he says in Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 19, he says, For what can be known about God is plain to them. Like God has revealed the truth is out there. He says it's plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. I mean, right there you go, man, God says I have revealed. And so God leverages creation as the tool of that revealing. We look around, we see what he's made, and we go, man, that points to God. See, in that sense, what God does with creation—this idea in Romans—is a little bit like this jack-in-the-box right here. Now, I want to say something about this right off the bat. This is the cruelest device ever de- devised for children and parents. I mean, honestly, it's a little bit like that old cartoon of um, what was it? Uh, Bambi meets Godzilla. You know what I mean? Like, like it's like just all sweet. The kids all so wonderful. You know what I mean? They don't even know that they're going to load their diaper in about 10 seconds. You know what I mean? Like just they're suckers. You know what I mean? They're just, Oh, it's so sweet. I'll get closer so I can hear better. You know, I'm like, it's going to freak you out, man. But see, that's, that's kind of what creation is. Creation's like that tune, that noise, that, that thing where we hear it and it's pleasant and, but it, but it's pointing in a direction. God didn't just make creation, so we go, wow, what a great creation. God made creation, and it makes its noise, and it plays its tune. Oh, I'm scared. Oh, All right, so. But it plays its tune, so there's something eventually revealed. And in this case, it's, it is a lion. Jesus is the lion. He's in his jammies, but still. All right, so, you know. But that's the idea where Paul says, man, creation testifies, creation proves, creation shows that God is real and he has made it plain so that we can understand. But then Paul goes on, or kind of before he gets into that in verse 18, and he gives us the context of why he says, you know, God's revealed himself. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They suppress the truth. And so again, we go back to our analogy, right? So we put this back together here. All right, we do this. Here's here's what the world basically does when it comes to truth. They go, um, I hear the tune. But just before the reveal, they just do this. They go, oh, we love the tune. Oh, it's so good. We can keep doing this all day, every day. We can research this tune. We can take pictures of this tune. We can appreciate the vistas of this tune. We can appreciate the wonder of the tune. Let's just keep the truth of it suppressed. That's all that happens. That's all they do. That's all Paul is saying transpires. And because of this, there's this deeper problem that emerges. Verse 21 of Romans chapter 1 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, nor give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, creeping things. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever Amen. He says they just keep holding the lid down. We don't want the reveal. We don't want to have to see God. We want to just keep saying there are lesser truths or different truths, not the truth that points to the only true God. No, no, we want the other thing. So we're going to have little, smaller, convoluted truths to obscure the one great truth. And so the problem isn't the truth isn't out there to be known. The problem is we don't want to hear the truth, so we stuff the truth we just stuff it and yet that doesn't mean the truth isn't there to know it's there and for those whom by god's grace we have come to see the truth not for something in and of ourselves we're not that bright the holy spirit had to do that but because we see the truth we get to tell others man the truth remains and is available It's available. Let me point you to the truth. Let me fill in the blank. Not just that you hear the tune, but let me tell you about the God behind the tune. Not just that you see creation, but the God who made the creation. In fact, Psalm 145, 18 says, The Lord is near to all who call on Him. All who call on Him in truth. I can't say it enough. It's available. It's present. We can embrace it. So how is truth revealed? This gets to the doctrine of revelation. First of all, it's revealed in what we call in theology general revelation. General revelation, in other words, it's the tune. General revelation is the things that, that are just all around us. For example, in the Bible, first of all, we see that general revelation is shown in Creation. That God speaks in creation. In fact, Psalm 19 verses one through four say this: "This says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies above proclaim His handiwork." Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor there is a word. Their voice is not heard, yet their voice goes out to all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Man, all you have to do is go out on a clear night, look up, you see these amazing stars, if you live out far enough, you see the Milky Way, and you go, that's the glory of God. It declares that. You know, if you look up and you go, oh, it's just all chance, you've missed it completely. Like, wow, that was lucky. If you want to be amazed, go to the Science Center and just watch the IMAX movie Hubble. It's like a worship service, where you just watch, and you're like, man, this is a vast universe. You want to have a sense of the awe of God, just go to Arizona during monsoon season. I grew up there as a kid, man. We would be out on the golf course. A monsoon would roll in. We'd be like, this is awesome. Then lightning would strike like 50 yards away. And we would all wet ourselves and run. And, you know, like, but God is immense. Right? That's his creation. Just listen to a child laugh. That's his creation. Hold a baby in awe. And you go, that's his creation. And in all of that, God is speaking. He says, I'm here, I'm real, I'm creative, I've made to show my glory. And so we recognize that God reveals himself in creation. That is general revelation. The other element of general revelation is that God speaks in conscience. God speaks in conscience. In fact, in Romans chapter 2, it says, For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. For even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written in their hearts. And their conscience either excuses or condemns. I mean, this is why when you look around all over the world, every religion has sort of the same moral code. That's why. The law is written on the heart. It's written in the conscience. That's the way it works. Or better yet, you ever see when a, a, a child uh, steals something from the store? Have you ever seen that? Like they're two or three and they see that low hanging fruit of like bazooka bubble gum or whatever it is, you know, and they'll like, and they kind of get really close and then they kind of lift it and they just shove it in their pocket and then they get real sheepish. You know, and you're like, so what you doing, Jimmy?
1: You know, they're
0: like nothing, you know, and they're like guarding where they've taken it like that little soul knows they just know if you have like more than one kid and they're younger and one kid does something to the other kid in a bad way when you're not in the room and you come in and you say, what happened? And they're just like, right, but they're sheepish, they're secretive in some ways. Well, that's the law written on the conscience. And so in in both of these contexts, it's God saying again, screaming out to us, I'm here, I'm real, I've spoken, you have a need for me. That's why you feel shame. That's why you feel embarrassment. That's why you feel worry. You see my creation. And in some sense, it sort of condemns even. Which is the goal of this kind of revelation. See, this revelation doesn't save. This type of revelation, the best it can do is say, you're without excuse. And that's what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, right? God reveals himself so that we're without excuse. We go, oh, okay, there's a God. See, general revelation can't give us a personal knowledge of God. It can just let us know that he's there. So the guy that says, well, you know what? I believe in God, but you know, I worship in my own way. Basically, I go fishing on Sundays and That's where I connect with God. Well, you're connecting with general revelation, but it's not enough to save. It's enough to condemn. You agree there's God, but you don't seem to worship Him. See, we need something to connect the dots. The general revelation drives us to something deeper, and the thing it drives us to that's deeper is specific revelation. Or special revelation is another thing we say. And what this means is God speaks, but He speaks in the canon. Not just creation, not just conscience, but what we call canon. This is a different word for Bible. When you hear canon, don't think like bazooka canon. Not the right canon. Though some people use the Bible like that, that's awesome. Um, But that's not what we're talking about. This is a word that we use in doctrine to describe the Bible. It is the measuring rod, the standard, the canon. That's what's meant by this. And when we think about the canon, we're being very specific. We're saying God's word, the Bible, is truth. In fact, it says in John 17, 17, Jesus pray, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The Bible is truth. That's specific or special revelation. 2 Timothy 3, 16 says, all scripture is breathed out by God. All of it, every bit, every word, every jot, every tittle, every sentence that you see in your Bible, that's breathed out by God. In fact, if you bring up the next slide, I want you to see, this is the truth. It's this great little diagram to show the Old and New Testament. Right? And and we affirm as evangelicals, that's Scripture. That's the Bible. Now, why do I highlight that? Why am I making that such an issue? Well, I want you to bring up the next slide because I want to be very clear. These are not... These are not. And and I'm I'm picky about this. Not because I love to be closed-minded uh, or I'm trying to be mean. But because truth matters. Revelation matters. And in this list, uh, there's varying degrees of recklessness. Right? The first one, the Book of Mormon. Again, I talked about Mormonism a little bit last week. Great people, kind people, moral people, good families, hardworking. I enjoy them. Their book, destructive. I'm just telling you, it's a destructive book. It does something almost no other alleged religious document does. It starts putting direct words into the mouth of Jesus and saying, well, Jesus said this also. Here's what else he told the world. And it was given only to us. Thousands of years later. Paul says something interesting in Galatians chapter 1. He says, if even an angel of light should come to you and preach a different gospel than the gospel that I've revealed to you, let them be damned. And you go back and you look at the story of Joseph Smith, and he's like, I was just out in the middle of nowhere, and then suddenly there's this angel of light, and he came, and he gave me this new message. Like Galatians chapter 1. Next you have the Quran, and the Quran doesn't seek to... Uh, necessarily violate the Bible. It's just sort of a continuation of things. It talks about Jesus and Mary and those kinds of things, but it's not divine revelation. It's even like a confetti shot. It doesn't even have continuity. It's just all these ideas kind of put out there. But it's not divine revelation. You've got the Eastern religions, and again, they don't always even claim to be divine revelation. They're just like, here's some ideas. Here's some wisdom. Here's some thoughts. And if you grew up in the Catholic Church, you have the Apocrypha. And the Apocrypha isn't bad, by the way. Again, like I said, varying degrees of misdirection. The Apocrypha is just some extra books that would be during the Old Testament period that the Jews did not affirm as Scripture. And the Church didn't affirm as Scripture until well after the Reformation where the Catholic Church said, Ah, you know, we want to be different than them Protestants. We'll add some more books. What the heck? Right? So, they're not bad. They're good. I got them in my office. I read them every once in a while. Insightful, but not Scripture. See, this is where we have to be clear about what we think general revelation is and what we think specific revelation is. And what we're saying is these 66 books are given to us by God and they are specific. They are God's word to us for his glory and for our good. The thing that comes out of this, well, is how can we know? How can we know the works of the Bible? How can we be certain uh, we have the right stuff, right? and this is where it comes into a lot of criticism that people have. And so the first thing I want to take you in is the idea of what it means to discern Scripture as far as how we came to the conclusion that, uh, well, these 66 books are the books. And see, I I think there's value to this uh, because even in the last uh, handful of years, there was just a lot of attack on that, right? I mean, I go back, you know, like when I was living in Spokane and the Da Vinci Code was huge. I mean, just huge. And I would talk with people and they'd be like, oh, well, you know how you got the Bible? See, Constantine, he like put this little secret group together and they were like smoking cigars and drinking whiskey and came up with the Bible, you know, and like, I'm like, where are you getting that? And they're like, the Da Vinci Code. I'm like, you know, that's fiction, right? Like it's a novel, it's fiction. They're like, oh no, but there's truth in it. And I'm like, yeah, I was reading Star Wars and Wookiees are among us too. You know, like, it's just like, <laughs> it's fiction, man. It's not rooted in anything that's reality. It's just fiction. And so we want to go, okay, well, what's the truth then? Because even some of us are like, well, yeah, maybe Constantine did that. Or I, I don't know how it came together. I guess I just kind of take it for granted. How did this work? So I'm going to take you through a quick historical timeline. Just so you go, oh, here's the overview. So that we understand that was the process. That's how it happened. Now, if you go from about 30 AD to 200 AD, what we see is that everybody affirmed the Old Testament at that point. At some point before that, the Jewish culture said, Here's Scripture. We'll see their process in a minute for that. But they said, Here's Scripture. And when you read even the Gospels, you've got Jesus quoting Scripture, affirming it as Scripture, saying, as Moses says, as the prophets say, as you see, David said, and he's affirming as the Scriptures say. So Jesus affirmed the Old Testament as Scripture, the apostles affirmed it as Scripture, everybody affirmed it as Scripture. So that's what you have about 30 A.D. to 200 A.D. Then at about mm, 185 to 200 You have a man named Origen who says, you know what, we really should start taking all of these letters that are circulating, all of these gospels, and we should comprise it into a canon, right? Again, a standard of rule, something we see as inspired scripture. And so let's do it from the perspective of take everything, but then we'll start to weed out based on a certain process and come to a conclusion from more to less, and so that started early on. Again, they were talking about this around 185. I mean, you know, Constantine isn't until like 312, 313 with some of the things that happened. So earlier than even his birth, the church was going, we should canonize and figure out how to do this. Then you have in about 367 AD, a man named Athanasius speaking about the list. And the list that he wrote was the 27 books of the New Testament that we still hold today as the New Testament. So at some point between 200 A.D. and 367, the church kind of came together through a series of different things and said, this is what we really believe is Scripture. God has given these things to us and they weeded out the other things. Now here's why that's important. It's the next date in your timeline. 380 A.D. There, the current Caesar... Finally said Christianity is now the religion of the empire Now that's important for two reasons one is when people say well Constantine made Christianity the religion of the Roman Empire No, he didn't So myth one He didn't do that The only thing Constantine did is he says, you know what? I need Jesus became a Christian and he says i'm not going to let Christians be persecuted anymore So he signed the edict of tolerance in like 312 313 and Christians just weren't persecuted That was it He lived, died, was buried before Christianity was made the religion of the empire. So when people say, well, Constantine did this, well, no, he didn't do it. Aside from that, the the church was already affirming the idea of the New Testament before Christianity was even the religion of the empire. I mean, notice the difference in the date. 367, the church said, here's the Bible. In 380, Rome said, we're now Christian in our religion. So when people say these things, I'm like, man, you're not reading history, you're just reading Brown." That's why I read Lucas, because it's fiction. It's fiction. Now, what happened a little while after this is that they had a group of councils that got together, and they said, all right, well, let's affirm the books of the New Testament concretely. We'll say, this is what we've all agreed on, and so you had the Synod of Hippo. Great name. All right, Synod of Hippo. And what they did is they came together, and they didn't say, ah, here's the Bible as we have decided it. What they did is they came together and they said, all right, you guys are from way out east in the Byzantine area, and you guys are are way up north in Rome, and we're way down here in Africa, and these other guys are from Jerusalem. What are you guys all thinking is Scripture? And the churches up there by Rome said, well, we think these are the 27 books that are the Bible. And the guys in Africa said, no way, so did we. And then the guys way out in the Byzantine region, they're like, no kidding, we came to the same conclusion on those 27 books. Right, So the notion that they came together in the secret little council and made that decision, that's not what happened. They came from all over the known Christian world, had a council. They all said, we agree, the Holy Spirit is laid on all of our hearts in these different places. And we didn't have email or texting. And we came to the conclusion, by way of his leadership, that this is scripture. And so what they did is they just affirmed that which God had already established in all those areas. And to get all of those areas on the same page, that's a miracle. That's an absolute miracle. I mean, don't think these people all loved each other. The Roman church did not like the Byzantine church. But they agreed on the Bible. Because they're like, the Holy Spirit's just brought us to this place. So again, when people say, oh, no, 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 it was just Constantine. It was a whole rigged thing. It was just to unify the empire. No, that's not the timeline. It was a process where the Holy Spirit brought it together over the course of time to discern the Scriptures. Now, from that, we can maybe say, well, what was the standard for discerning? How did they try to weed out from greater to less? Well, in the Old Testament, it was a pretty simple standard. The writing had to be composed in Hebrew. It had to be sanctioned for usage in the Jewish community. So all the communities that were Jewish said, yep, those are what we see as Scripture. It had to contain at least one of the great religious themes of Judaism, such as election or covenant. And it had to be composed before the close of the prophetic era in 450 or 435 BC. So it's like, if that was true, they said, this is scripture. And then in the New Testament, it was a similar kind of thing. Writings had to be connected to apostolic origin, an apostle or an associate of an apostle. They had to be congruent with the rule of faith passed down by the apostles. They had to be consistent with one another, universally accepted, and useful in liturgy for the church. And so they used all that criteria, applied it to all these things. So when people say, oh, the church, they weeded out all the Gnostic Gospels. There was the Gospel of Judas a couple of years ago. And people are like, why isn't it in the Bible? I'm like, because the dude that wrote it was on crack at the time, and nobody affirmed it. They're like, that doesn't even make sense. No church agrees with it. And so it was chucked out. It wasn't a conspiracy. It was useless. So the church had these very clear goals, a scrutiny. And the Holy Spirit brought them to oneness on discerning the Old and New Testament. Well, some will look at this and they'll say, okay, fine, maybe they got it right. But how do we know we have the right stuff today? I mean, 2,000 years of passing stuff down, can that mess things up? Can we get the wrong thing after a thousand years somebody screwed up and got the text wrong? Well, again, what's interesting about that and the reliability of transmission is just how much we have to look at. For example, we have a little diagram we're going to bring up here of historical books, right? And so we go, Homer, the Iliad. Everybody believes Homer actually wrote it, and what we have today is what he wrote. But we only have 643 copies of that. And the time from Homer to the time we actually find the very first copy in history is a huge amount of time separated. Who knows if we actually have Homer or not? Same with these other books. We go, well, hey, what Plato wrote. Well, how do we know what Plato wrote? I mean, again, we have so few documents, and the time he wrote to the first documents we can find in history are so far apart, how can we know? But when we get to the Bible, we find that the time from the writing to the first documents we find, very abbreviated. And it's not just 600 or 8 or 7 or 12 documents. We have 14,000 documents passed down for 2,000 years. And in that, different parts of the world. So again, go back to that beginning where I said the Byzantine church and the Roman church and the African church. And they all have these copies and they're making them and passing them down and spreading them to other churches. We can take all of that data, put it together and go, hey, is that what we still have today? And we can. We put it together and go, wow. 2,000 years. We've done a really great job of passing this down properly. So I I share all this. I know it's sort of, it's academic, it's kind of homework, and I'm trying to distill it as small as possible, but I think we live in a part of the country that's more educated and these are the things they pick on. Right? I mean, this is stuff they criticize. Ah, no, 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 it's a conspiracy. No, 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 you can't know. How do you know it was reliable in the transmission? These are the ways we know. We have faith, but we don't have a blind faith. We don't have foolish faith. We have a faith rooted in certain ideas, ideals, evidences, and truths, which is why we go, man, we believe the Bible is true. But if I took it a step deeper, I'd say there, there's there's something to me, and this is transitioning out of the academic and a little bit more and, and, and to the to the kind of the glorious side of it. Um, I think more than all of the evidence of here's how they transmitted it, here's how they recorded it, here's how they passed it. I simply look at the wonder of the Bible. And I go, man, that alone to me is enough. That alone to me, the wonder of the Bible is enough. Think about the wonder of the Bible. It was comprised over 1,500 years. It's 66 different documents. It's written by 40 different authors. It has eight different genres. It was written on three different continents. It has two testaments, but it testifies to one glorious God. I mean, if you just think about, I mean, this is one of the things that even, like, critics of Christianity will say. They look at the Bible and they say, what makes it unique from every other religious document on the planet is its continuity. Because it spans so much time, how did all of those guys know to keep the storyline balanced, equal, and non-contradictory? If you watched Lost, they couldn't do that in six seasons, right? I mean, like, honestly, you're like, dude, I don't even know what that cloud thing is. And what happened to the bearish dude? You know what I mean? Like, I don't even know what happened. Right? And that's six seasons. And those guys are in an air-conditioned space and making good money to write it. You got guys that were out in the desert as fugitives, guys that were in palaces as kings. You have people that were farmers. You have people that were fishermen. You had poets. You had philosophers. You had statesmen. And yet the story is just this constant, continuous, perfect thread of how God works. In fact, even if you think about your Bible, it's so interesting to me. Like, just the way it's comprised. I go, here's how it breaks down right here. This page, God creates. We're made for unity. And we rebel. Then I go all the way. It's one page. And then I go all the way to the back. And I go, ah, right there. One page, God has everything restored and we live in bliss. Everything in between is him fixing it. Everything in between those two pages is him fixing it. And so you have broken people and broken cultures and broken problems. And yet for all of that, God communicated his continuous thread through all of these different people. Showing him fixing the problem. That's the wonder of the Bible. I'm amazed by its wonder. More than that, I'm amazed by its witness. Its witness. The Bible says that the Bible is breathed out by God. All Scripture is the breath of God. It's given by God. Right? So again, this isn't just like, ah, oh, well, it's nice little insights or musings or opinions or anecdotes or updates or nuggets of wisdom or just bumper sticker statements or whatever. No, it's God's very breath to us, His very Word to us. I mean, that is powerful. That is the witness of the Bible. And when we think about the witness of the Bible as breathed out by God, we also acknowledge that it is inspired by the Holy Spirit. There's a great passage in Peter, that says no prophecy ever came by the will of men. But God and His Spirit carried men along to write the Scriptures. What people say it was just a bunch of sexist white dudes that were angry at the world. No, it was the Holy Spirit who was then a sexist angry at the world. Whatever you want to say. But don't, don't put it on men. You're going to have a mischaracterization. Make sure you put it on the Holy Spirit who wrote it. Because He wrote it. He guided their every word. He gave them body and breath to the message, and so it's inspired by the Spirit. Not like a muse inspires, but somehow they knew every word was the word that God wanted them to write, right? That is the witness of the Bible. We also see that in the witness of the Bible, it's sufficient for life. Sufficient for life. Psalm 19. It says the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. It's sufficient. I struggle with it. Sometimes I think, no, 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 my own wisdom is sufficient. My own insight is sufficient. My own resolve is sufficient. And God says, dude, you're stupid. My word is sufficient. Just do what it says. You're going to do well. Go against what it says. It's going to go bad for you. It's a powerful witness because it's sufficient for life. And David says, man, it is sweet to the soul. He says, it's more desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than honey that drips from the honeycomb. Moreover, by them, your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. He's talking about the law. I mean, I love that because I look and I go, really, the word's more important than fine gold because gold is cool. Honey? Awesome. No, the word is better. It's the witness. I think this is chiefly true because it's what Ryan read in the worship set today. When you think about truth and scripture and the word, the word is the word. The word of the Bible is ultimately Jesus. It's ultimately Jesus. In fact, in Hebrews, it says, Long ago, and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed the heir of all things, through whom He has also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. See, understand, the Old Testament doesn't just prepare us for Jesus. The Old Testament reveals to us Jesus. The whole Bible reveals to us Jesus. The Bible is all about Jesus. In fact, in John chapter 5, he says, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. He says, But don't you realize they bear witness about me? If you had believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. He says he wrote of me. It's all about me. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus rises from the dead. He meets the guys on the road to Emmaus. And he says, I'm going to have to teach you about everything that reveals me. In the law, and the prophets, uh, and in the Psalms. I'm all over the place in the Old Testament. It's all about me. See, that's what's so critical. The whole Bible's about him. Not just the New Testament. Not just the Gospels. Everything. In fact, Tim Keller wrote this great picture of how it's all about Jesus throughout the Old Testament. He said this. He says, Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed his test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the better and truer Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood that cries out not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham, who answered the call of God to leave the comfortable and familiar to go into the void, not knowing where he went. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all. As God said to Abraham, now I know that you love me because you didn't withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. Now we at the foot of the cross can say to God, now we know that you love us because you did not withhold your son, the only son whom you love, from us. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserved, so that like Jacob, only, we only receive now the wounds of grace. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who is at the right hand of the king and forgives those who betrayed him and uses his power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses, who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord, and he now mediates the new covenant. Jesus is the true and better Job. Though he is truly innocent, he suffers and intercedes and saves his stupid friends, which is great. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, even though they never even lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace but lost the ultimate and heavenly one who didn't just risk his life but gave his life to save people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah who was cast into the storm so that we could be bought. Jesus is the real rock of Moses, the real Passover lamb. He is the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the lamb, the light, and the bread. It is not about you. It is about Jesus. That's the big idea. It's about Jesus. And so I, I think about all of this. Right? This doctrine of revelation, this acknowledgement of Scripture, this emphasis on the word and how God speaks. And I know some of you right now you're like, Okay, man, I hope this is wrapping up. This is heavy. But but my prayer is that we dig deep and ask ourselves hard questions. Right? I mean, really, we can, we can defend this, we can um, own this, we can revere this, um, but really, do we see just how absolutely important this is? Because I, I don't believe it's enough to say, I believe in the Bible. I mean, that's easy to say. We all say, I believe in the Bible. The real issue is, do I believe the Bible I believe in? See, that's the real issue. Do I believe the Bible I believe in? Do I believe that God has really spoken? Am I eager to get in this and see Him? Do I want to know what it says for my life versus just what my intuition says for my life? Do I really believe that if I do what it says, it's better for me than if I go, I know it says that, but that's going to be too hard. So I want to do it my way. Do we believe what it says? Again, it's not enough to believe in it. We need to believe it. Let's pray together. Jesus I thank you for your word. I thank you for uh, doctrine. I know sometimes doctrine can feel a little bit like eating our vegetables. We know it's good for us. But I pray that we'll see it that way. Yeah, sometimes it's like that, and it's good for us. I pray that we will honor you. I pray that we will look at your word and love what you've shared with us, what you have revealed to us, and that chiefly we'll look and we'll say, it's your glory that we see It's your glory in gospel. It's your glory in your son. It's your glory in your church. It's your glory all the way around. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you in your name. Amen.